Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to the Farm Food Facts Interactive Podcast presented by the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance. U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance wants to be your resource for all things food and agriculture. This weekly podcast on Wednesdays from 1130 to 12 Central Time offers CPGs, retailers, and food trade media a central location to access food and agriculture news and the opportunity to engage directly with a farmer or rancher and sustainability thought leaders in real time. Today, U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance CEO Aaron Fitzgerald discusses how today's farmers honor the harvest and how food retailers can support the initiative in-store and in their promotions. Zia Daniel Wigder, co-founder and chief global content officer at Grocery Shop, will share why it's important for farmers and ranchers to be included in the discussions with grocery and e-commerce retailers. For the food news of the week, we'll be talking about Rotterdam's Harbor, which is home to the world's first floating dairy farm. Transparency comes to Thanksgiving as brands offer traceable turkey programs via blockchain to consumers. For our post-hurricane update, farmers are feeling the pain as rising costs and lower prices put further pressure on operations. And robots as cattle drivers are improving animal welfare and employee safety. Emily Buck, PhD, Ohio crop and sheep farmer and professor at Ohio State University joins us to discuss soil erosion, pesticide runoff, the conservation reserve program, and her recent discussions with retailers at grocery shops. Farm Food Facts will last no more than 30 minutes. If there are any questions that we're not able to get to, Paul Spooner from USFRA will follow up directly. Let's get started. Aaron, Thanksgiving, America's foremost food holiday, is right around the corner. We often hear the term, honor the harvest. What does it really mean? You know, honor the harvest is really a mindset about recognizing what it takes to produce food in the 21st century. In the United States, we, we have a lot of culture and um, interaction with food at our dinner tables, but we often um, have referred through, throughout our history, we referred to land of milk and honey, a bread basket, mm-hmm. amber ways of grain, and my favorite, blessed and bountiful. We even have a whole holiday dedicated to honoring the harvest but we might not have identified what it takes to honor the harvest in the 21st century. We have unprecedented change that's happening in agriculture, that we have to produce 70% more food with 2% less land, and we have this crazy thing that we call climate change. Another way to look at it is that we have 40 chances to produce as much food as we've produced in all of mankind in the last 8,000 years. It's gonna require incredible change. And we need to maybe think about our food as a great, our greatest natural resource harvested from our land. Farmers cannot do this for us in the next 40 years if we do not value food as one of the greatest natural resources and use it for its intended highest purpose, which is to nourish people, then nourish animals, and then replenish the land to grow more food. In many ways, honoring the harvest is using food to its highest purpose and really thinking about how you are utilizing food, not eating too much, using it to nourish your families, recognizing in your communities that there are still one in six people who are facing hunger in America, 
and making certain that we don't throw away food. We, it is a natural resource. And if you need to throw it away, you're using it and as ability to compost or um, replenish the land. So thinking about it almost as a food cycle. Well, Aaron, you know, we see the stats that show that to the point of waste, that 40% of all food um, around the globe is actually being wasted. So is that the first step to honoring the harvest? Should we really be working with consumers, with retailers, with farmers, with everybody to really lower that high level of waste? Yeah, I mean, if we think about food as, as all that hard work that farmers did to harvest, the, the food and make it available for us, you know, we need to make certain that we're not taking too much and we're nourishing our bodies and eating diverse foods, but we're not, you know, needlessly throwing it away. There's also this other juxtaposition of taking too much and then this other construct where people don't have enough. And so really recognizing both the social and environmental responsibility when we think about our food system, that it is about healthy eating not taking too much and not wasting it, what we do take, and recognizing it as a natural resource. And then, and then also thinking about the social component of our actions and really recognizing that a lot of people don't have food at this time. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. Farmers are feeling a tight squeeze post-hurricane season, but not for the obvious reasons. While many farmers in North Carolina are still trying to recover from the flooding and wind damage that Hurricane Florence brought on them last month, several farmers will also tell us that things were difficult even before the storms. Produce prices are down while labor costs are up. Therefore, making a living on a farm is tough right now. For example, Birch Farms, one of the largest vegetable growers in North Carolina, which is a family farm where the birches grow broccoli, sweet potatoes, and leafy greens, Birch Farms can't afford to lower their prices. But its labor costs are up $4 an hour as compared to three years ago. This is because the farm's employees are mostly migrant workers here on a government-sponsored visa program. They earn $11.50 an hour and receive free housing and transportation. Now, the Birches could significantly reduce their labor cost if they hired local labor, as the minimum wage in North Carolina is only $7.25, and locals don't get free housing. However, nobody local wants to work on a farm, Big Jimmy Birch reports, not in the fields anyway. That's just the way it is. Americans are raised not to want to work on a farm. Big Jimmy is now in his 60s, and most other farmers he knows are around the same age. The problem is that getting young people excited about farming has been really tough. Meanwhile, the UN estimates that world food production will need to double by 2050 in order to keep up with population growth. Family farmers, like the Birches, along with agriculture economists around the world, say they have no idea who is going to grow it, given the current level of interest. What the grocers need to know is that the farming community needs to find more ways to light a fire under new and prospective agriculturists as the need for food production continues to rise. And while we do need more young people with an interest in farming, at least there are some new methods emerging which can help sustain current farmers' abilities to stay safe and keep working in the fields. 
Cargill has developed the industry's first robotic cattle driver. This cattle driver is designed to improve animal welfare as well as employee safety. The robots will be able to move cattle from their pens into the harvest area, which will reduce the stress to the animals by minimizing their proximity to humans. Employees can operate the robots from a catwalk above the pens, in turn reducing safety risks by keeping workers in the cattle yard away from the 1,300-pound animals. Sammy Rentera, the general manager of a Cargill beef plant in Nebraska, says the average bovine weighs almost three quarters of a ton, and our plant processes several thousand heads of cattle every day. This innovation provides a much safer workplace for our employees and allows them to develop new technology expertise as they manage and operate the robot. What grocers need to know is that this new technology has the potential to improve both employee safety and animal welfare. And keeping animal welfare in mind, dairy cows may soon be embarking on a new type of farm experience. The world's first floating dairy farm is in the works. A floating dairy farm may sound unbelievable, but it's the vision of Belladon, a Dutch property development company, and it's quite close to becoming a reality. This project has been in the works for several years now, but the farm recently got the all clear to begin construction. Earlier this year, a 900-ton concrete platform was lugged by barge to its place in Rotterdam's Maryhaven Harbor. While it doesn't look like much yet, according to the owners of Belladon, it will soon become a multi-level high-tech home to 40 Meuse-Rhine-Esel cows, and it just might become the best bovine real estate on the river. Because animal welfare was a top priority while designing the farm, the team enlisted the help of a full-time farmer in order to determine the materials, temperatures, feed, and major elements needed for the design. The completed farm will feature a cow garden on the top floor of the building with artificial leafy trees and sprawling ivy to offer shade for the cattle. In addition, the soft floor will mimic a natural environment, and it will allow urine to soak through in order to mitigate ammonia emissions. To accommodate the cows with their milking schedules, teams of robots will be on dairy duty, collecting approximately 800 liters of milk per day. The milk will be processed and sold locally, and the focus of this project is food sustainability, as there's an increasing need for more space to grow, more fresh food. So where will that space come from? In this case, it's being created. What grocers need to know is with the increasing need for more space to grow more fresh food, this is an innovative alternative option to consider. The cows may give thanks for these lush new floating farms, and keeping with this attitude of gratitude, the Thanksgiving holiday is just around the corner. This year, Cargill and Honeysuckle White will expand its Thanksgiving traceable turkey programs and build on their commitment to food transparency. Traceable turkey programs are in place so that more consumers can know the name of the farmer who raised their Thanksgiving bird. The program uses blockchain technology so that consumers will be able to follow the entire lifestyle of their turkey, from the farm where they're raised to the facility where they're processed. This program was tested last year with the Honeysuckle White brand, and it was so popular that they've decided to nearly quadruple the number of traceable birds available in stores. By texting or entering an on-package code online, consumers can trace their turkey back to the family farm view the farm story, see photos from the farm, and even read a message from the farmer. 
Cassie Long, Honeysuckle White's brand manager, says, We launched this program as a pilot in 2017 and are expanding it this year to meet the increased consumer demand for farm-to-fork transparency. Now more consumers can get to know the farmers that raise their turkeys and enjoy a family farm raised turkey this holiday season. What grocers need to know is that consumers will be able to give thanks to the family farmer who raised their holiday turkey. Third generation farmer Dr. Emily Buck and her husband John grow corn and soybeans on their farm in central Ohio, along with a flock of 40 Southdown sheep. Nestled within the Lake Erie and Mississippi River watersheds, their goal is to be environmentally conscious. Emily is also a professor of agriculture communication at Ohio State University. She's an active member of the Ohio Farm Bureau, Ohio Sheep Improvement Association, American Ag Editors Association, and serves as one of the U.S. Farmers and Rancher Alliance Faces of Farming and Ranching. Emily, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thanks, Phil. It's exciting to be here. Let's start off with your commitment to the Conservation Reserve Program. What is it and what are you and John doing? Well, the Conservation Reserve Program is something that the uh, USDA and government have set aside to allow farmers to put land out of production. Um, what this means is we don't have to um, use this land. We don't lose the money on the land. We get a, a small payment from the government to allow us to put this land back to its natural habitat. So we've got about 35 acres that currently is just sitting. It's a wetland area. And by not farming it, what has happened is a lot of the natural vegetation has grown back. Um, a lot of natural um, habitat for animals, bees, pollinators, um, butterflies, all of the things that we're concerned about, we're making sure that we're giving a nice habitat to by setting this land um, aside. And, you know, it's interesting if we look at National Geographic um, with their Animal Arc program and so on, they're really stressing continuously how we need these natural habitats to, frankly, preserve the earth. So I think what you and John are doing is, is fabulous. How widespread is this program with farmers throughout the country? Um, you know, obviously, it's a nationwide um, program. Um, it depends on the area, how much it has been adopted over the years. Um, a lot of times you see it in areas like ours where there's some wetlands or some land that uh, isn't always the best for farming anyways. So farmers have decided if, if we can't use it um, that way, environmentally friendly, let's use it this way. We hear a lot about farmers and ranchers being stewards of the land. What does that mean? Is it, is it, exactly what you're describing with the conservation program, or does it go a lot further than that? It, it, it's all of the above, Phil. Um, you know, for us, what it means is, you know, we have this conservation land set aside, but we also have what we call buffer strips or along our fields and, and waterways in our fields that allow the water to have its natural flow through the land. With our land sitting on two watersheds, Lake Erie and the Mississippi, both two very large watersheds that are used by millions of people. I mean, it's important what that water does when it comes off of our fields. So by putting those kinds of things in place, we make sure that there is no um, runoff from anything that we would put onto the fields. It also, again, gives a, us ability to add some natural um, habitats. 
The other things that we do, we practice 100% no-till farming. And what that means is when you go into your garden every year and, and you till up the soil before you plant, um, what you do is you, you mess up some of the natural um, fibers and things that are in that soil, some of the natural um, ingredients. And well, bugs. We don't, and, and bugs and, and, and everything. And, and you're, um, we don't do that. We don't go over the, the field that extra time and till up our soil, which means we have a lot more organic matter, a lot more natural matter. Um, it allows for better drainage in the soil. Um, it's a richer soil. And what it means for our environment is our tractors are going over our fields two less times than our neighbors who are tilling. So not only are we dealing, you know, not compacting that soil, we're also not adding um, anything into the air with our um, tractor's exhaust. You know, it's little things like that that we can do as farmers to help make sure that the environment is safe for us, for our children in the future, and for our consumers. Emily, stay right there. I now want to introduce Zia Daniel Wigder, co-founder and chief global content officer at Grocery Shop, to share why it's important for farmers and ranchers to be included in the discussions with grocery and e-commerce retailers, something that you did, Emily, uh, just a couple weeks ago. Zia, welcome. Thanks. Tell us first, what is Grocery Shop? Sure. So we are a new event focused on creating a new community that uh, revolves all around innovation across grocery and CPG. So we just launched our first event in late October in Las Vegas. We had almost 2,300 people there in year one. And our goal really is to reach kind of the whole grocery and CPG community, everyone from the venture-backed startups, both tech companies and uh, consumer brands, as well as established brands and retailers, investors, real estate companies, kind of the entire community of grocery to talk about how this industry is changing. And what is it that you hope to achieve by bringing all these people together? So our goal with Grocery Shop was similar to Shop Talk in that we felt this community didn't really exist. There were kind of subsets of the communities, you know, at different events and with different organizations, but there wasn't one that brought everybody together in one place to talk about all of the changes that are happening in grocery and CPG today. And there are sort of two major things happening that, you know, the first being all around the shift in consumer preferences and you know greater concern over what they're consuming, whether that be food or what they're uh, the products they're putting on their bodies. The second piece of that is the digitization of grocery and CPG. And between those two trends, the entire industry is being upended. And so our goal is to bring people together to talk about these changes, to learn from each other and really help map out what this industry is going to look like a few years from now, because it will be quite different. And, you know, it's funny that the way you describe it, because that's actually what the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers um, Alliance does on the ag side, bringing all these disparate groups together to have one single voice. Um, so why do you think that it's important that folks like U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance participate in, in events like Grocery Shop? Yeah, and I think that the two major trends that I talked about very much uh, have an impact on what's happening you know, with the farmers and ranchers and their entire businesses. The first, as I mentioned, kind of the, the shift in consumer preferences, you know, the attributes and what they're looking to consume are changing quite a lot. You know, understanding how this behavior is shifting and what those demands are going to look like going forward is absolutely critical. 
And then this other piece around the digitization of grocery and CPG. That's everything from the customer experience all the way through the supply chain. And so with Grocery Shop, we're looking to um, bring together, again, not just kind of the brands and retailers that are will be the ones selling the product, but everyone um, that's bringing to market new technologies, whether it be ag tech, whether it be you know more broadly food tech going across the entire value chain, or whether it really be about e-commerce technologies that are going to be uh, powering the sites that are selling a lot of the food going forward. Because as we know, only about 2 to 3% of groceries are sold online in the U.S. today. But people are predicting that going forward, that will be you know, 10, maybe 20% at some point. So understanding how these products are going to be sold and how they're going to be getting to consumers, whether that's going to be through last mile delivery or through store pickup, is going to be really critical for those that are you know, producing uh, the items that are being sold in you know, everything from grocery stores to mass merchants to drug stores, convenience stores, dollar stores, kind of everyone looking to get into grocery today. Emily, you were part of the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance team that went to grocery shop to meet with retailers. What did you hear from them and were there any surprises? Um, you know, I think one thing that we, we saw time and time again is um, that it's surprising but not surprising. When it gets down to it, everybody has a connection to the food and the farm. Um, talking to people, everyone could somehow go back to a great-grandfather or a grandfather who had a farm. Um, and, and so I think it's sometimes it's reminding people of those connections. You know, a lot of our discussions really were around what can we as um, USFRA and farmers provide grocers as they work with these consumers who want to know more about their food. Uh, as you stated, USFRA is definitely a resource of a bunch of commodities and organizations together. So we're hoping that by having a digital newsroom, having sort of an all-in-one shop space for our um, grocers, we'll be able to provide them that contact with farmers um, that we heard them saying loud and clear that they needed and wanted. Well, one of the things that Aaron shared with me, which I thought was so cool, in, in one of the conversations with the retailers, what they asked for is to be able to hold a contest for their frequent shopper card members, and the winner would get to go to a farm. Now, can you imagine, you know, the impact if we could do that with every retailer in the country? It would be amazing. Farmers, we we welcome people coming to the farm and seeing what we do. We want people to understand um, why why we make the decisions we do for our farms. And if we can have that connection, if every farmer can have a connection to the grocer that's close to them, that would be perfect. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Zia. Thank you for joining us on Farm Food Facts. For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, please visit fooddialogues.com backslash farmfoodfacts. Next week, our thought leader guest will be Walter Robb, former co-CEO of Whole Foods, who is now investing in food and agriculture startups and will share his insights on both organic and conventional agriculture, how we need to work together. The importance of retailers working with farmers, how food and agriculture is moving sustainably forward through technology and continuous improvement. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.